welcome back to another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. I'm your host, Thea Wood. Today's guest is the first ever chair of the Electronic Production and Design Department at Berklee College of Music. She is a sound designer, composer-producer, recording engineer, and founder of Women Beatmakers. She worked for many years as part of the Emmy Award-winning production team at Sesame Workshop, where she composed music, worked on sound design, and recorded voice work for, who else? The Muppets! Other sound credits include animated television shows such as Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! and online media, plus gaming, and applications for clients such as 4Kids Entertainment, HBO Family, The Learning Channel, Mashi Monsters, Tokoboka, and more. And as if that wasn't enough, her past also includes founding Girls Like Bass, which is a pretty funky, psychedelic, trippy space thing going on, as her alter ego, Misha D, and with the experimental project, Aerostatic, which made me feel like I was in a sci-fi movie. From college vice chair by day to funked up beat master by night, here she is, the talented Michelle Darling. <laughs> it's so nice to have you here. Thank you. That's quite a an introduction. Thanks. I do my best. You know, we got to get the people pumped up for what we're going to talk about. That's right. I didn't. I didn't even. Uh, I love the way you put that with the, what I'm doing during the day and then uh, by night, the, the funked up beatmaster. Yeah. Well, it kind of feels that way. Um, so actually, everybody. So everyone knows I'm in Detroit right now, and Michelle is in Boston. Yeah. And yeah. uh, so she's getting ready to teach a class tonight. So we're going to stay in a timely manner, or we're going to try. But we're still going to have a lot of fun, right? Yes, we are. I'm already having fun. We're already <laughs> having fun. That's right. Well, of course, uh, like all of our other guests, we're going to sh- start with the shakedown, which is a set of questions that we ask everyone. It's kind of short answer, but sometimes we have a good story behind them. So are you ready to shake it up? Yes, absolutely. All right. The first question, who was your first concert? Well, I was very little, and my parents took me to see Captain and Tennille, which is stop because I really love you. <laughs> that, that one, I was very young, maybe five or, or something like that, but it, it was kind of magical, and I still have the tour book. <laughs> well, you do. Where was the concert? Well, I grew up in Indiana in a little Amish um, Mennonite area, and um, and there was a county fair, and so there was a lot of you know, artists that came through there at the time. So, um, yes, I've come a long way since then. (laughs) Talk a little more about that soon. Uh, the second question, what was the first album you bought with your own money? My own money. Well, you know, I've been into electronic music a long time. I was a classical musician in college and, you know, through, through my childhood and I discovered electronic music at uh, a very young age. And that's kind of what I was hearing on the radio, but also we would hear music from Europe. Um, and and I was so excited about the bands that were doing these new sounds. Um, so there was a band called Severed Heads at the time. <laughs> Sounds sort of brutal now, but they were really pushing the limits of electronic sound. So um, that was, I believe, one of my first albums that I ever purchased myself. Severed Heads. Okay, everybody, put it on your playlist. You got to hear where it all started. <laughs> All right, well, then kind of fast forwarding, which artist or band is in heavy rotation on your playlist right now? Oh, my goodness. Well, there's so many. Um, So 
there's there's a few different things happening, which is that being at Berkeley, um, I'm around a lot of pop music and a lot of jazz and, and that sort of thing. So I'm trying to expand more. Um, so I'm I'm listening a lot to the Billboard Hot 100, and then there's there's Harry Styles, and there's uh, all kinds of great artists that are out there now. And I'm, I'm trying to appreciate the songwriting. Um, Find them and uh, everything from Lizzo to you know um, running a blank on some of of the ones. I mean, One Republic has, has a good song out right now. There's a lot of eclectic artists out there, um, but I guess what I'm really interested in too is the is the people pushing the limits of music production, pushing the limits of sounds and timbres. It's so important because we do want to hear fresh sounds all the time, and that's sort of the world I live in. And so there's artists that sort of push the the limits. I mean, um, there's one that I listen to that's electronic based that's called Felsius. And um, there's uh, an, a couple of them that are on the faculty here. One is called uh, Daedalus and really pushing the, um, the, the potential of electronic sounds and electronic music and performance. Um, there's also another artist here that's in sort of the lo-fi area named Bad Snacks, and uh, she has joined our faculty recently. And Bad so Snacks? Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> there's a lot of different, I guess what I just want to instill is there's a lot of things happening in music right now, and there's space for for everything, I feel like. So it sounds like your playlist is constantly evolving. <laughs> Absolutely. But I think that's important, right? I think it's yes. really important because there's always good music coming out and you want to um, kind of understand what people are excited about and what's fresh. And then, you know, not that you want to copy people, but you want to see where you might fit in that and, and how you can sort of get gain, gain audiences by, you know, what kind of scenes they're building and brewing and what the new sounds are so that you can kind of be all, uh, aligned with that. I agree. Oh, and that makes it more fun. You know, diversity is, is the key. Next question this is the big one. Which woman has had the most influence on your career? Oh, my gosh. I remember uh, this question is so hard for me because there, there are so many. <laughs> so having one, I have to say that I, I did choose the tech side of, of music and uh, sound design. So I, hadn't, I didn't have a lot of role models. Mm-hmm. And so one thing I wanted to point out is that I was able to, there's a lot more now. There's incredible women DJs. There's incredible women engineers. Leslie Ann Jones um, works at Skywalker Ranch, um, producer, engineer, just incredible. Um, Sylvia Massey. There's these people that I, I just admired from afar. Um, but I have to say, in my world of engineering, sometimes, and I did a lot of work for television, that I also had to find women that were maybe doing a technical field, but unrelated, that were maybe video editors that I came, or animators that I would come in contact with at, at Sesame Workshop, for instance, that I had to sort of look at them and say, hey, they're doing it, their field's technical there might be more of them over there, but I want to do the same in sound, in audio, in audio engineering. And so um, I kind of had to look at a lot of different paths. And then I had to look at um, male allies <laughs> because there's so many men that came before um, to say, hey, could I be that? 
And, you know, then finding mentors and teachers who were like, it's cool. You're a woman. Let me teach you, you know? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how your classes have changed through the years too, because that's something I know that you've discussed in the past. Um, Our next shakedown question, if you could have dinner with any woman dead or alive, who would it be? I wouldn't actually mind having dinner with Leslie Ann Jones. (laughs) There you go. First, but I'm, I'm sure there's a whole list of them that I, that I would and want was to. And was Leslie Ann Jones the one who was at Skywalker? Yeah. Ranch. Okay, so for people who are not total nerds like me, that is all <laughs> part of like the Lucas, Star Wars kind of thing, right? Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. a pretty big deal. Also, I would have dinner with Susan Rogers in a heartbeat. Oh, me too. <laughs> See? See? Yes. <laughs> I'm planning a trip to Boston. Maybe we can all, you know, get together and have lunch at some point. That would be amazing. <laughs> that would be amazing. So hello, Susan, if you're out there. Uh, okay, here's our last question. Are you ready? Yes. What is one life goal you'd like to accomplish before climbing that golden stairway to heaven? Mm, I think in music... I think there's more I want to express. And I guess my next project is working in new technologies. Mm -hmm. So that is leaning towards um, immersive spaces, VR. It's leaning towards NFTs, um, that sort of thing. So I think I'm getting ready. It's brewing of building a new a new project that feels sort of fresh to me in that in that artistic space. I love it. And a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is certainly going to be centered around new technologies. And that's part of the reason why we're really excited for this conversation. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back to our interview with Michelle Darling. We'll be right back. Sign up for the Horizon Music Newsletter and never miss an episode. Plus, get in-depth articles, event invites, and news affecting women in music and the fans who love them. Go to horizonmusic.substack.com. That's H-E-R-I-Z-O-N music.substack.com. Now, back to the show. And we're back. I'm here with electronic production and design guru, Michelle Darling. And um, we just made it through the shakedown. Woohoo! Yay! To get to know Michelle a little bit more. And the first thing, because so many of the people who listen to our podcast are huge music fans, but they're not necessarily musicians or know anything about the technical side of music and sound. So I was hoping that you could explain for us what electronic production and design kind of is. That's a great question. I would say it's not typically a common term <laughs> that we that we use in the industry but it's uh it's a department here at berkeley and um, the students are generally coming to us to study electronic music production and so that's one area and that's the electronic production so electronic music production um, and that includes everything from synthesis synthesizers it, it was formerly the music synthesis department so that's where its roots are in um, and then so we learn pretty deeply music synthesis and how to create your own sounds and make your own presets and then we also do the you know information on on the production itself and um, everything from recording and mixing your productions um, so typically students in that area are doing 
um, EPs. Uh, they're doing their own music with themselves as the artist, though they could collaborate as well. We have some collaboration um, opportunities here um, to work with singers and that kind of thing. Um, but we also have sound designers, which is maybe the design part of, <laughs> of uh, electronic production and design. Um, there's a few things in that area, but sound design is crafting sounds. And that could be for music productions. Um, that could be um, whether it's synthesized or recorded and affected, um, processed and that sort of thing. Um, I did some work, for instance, um, making presets. Some of our students do, uh, but for instance, I worked on Ableton, Ableton's um, live, um, Ableton Live sound design team um, for a while, like designing sounds for music producers to use um, that are ha when they have access to the software, they can get sound packs. So, um, so this is like a marketplace, like where they can go in and shop sounds and download them? Yeah, yeah. So these particular ones I'm talking about were were on the Ableton website, um, but there's other there's other um, places for for people to make sound packs, um, such as Splice and that sort of thing. Um, so we we think a lot about sound here and new sounds and creating sounds um, for other people to use in their productions. Um, but sound design here also goes in towards the area that I've ha made my living largely in my career, which is sound for visual media. And in that case, it was film and television, and, and it's also moved now into um, more nonlinear places like games um, and virtual spaces. And so we are um, teaching sound design for environments like that and new platforms because we assume that our students are going to be they're going to be doing music and they're going to be doing sound design four years from now. You know, we all might be on you know. AR glasses, <laughs> augmented reality glasses, uh, you know, virtual reality and, and Quest 2s now are, are kind of getting some, some play. So where do we need to, what do we need to teach students to be able to be prepared for four years from now is what we're thinking about. Absolutely. For sure. And so uh, there's mention um, on the Berkeley site about ADR. What the heck is ADR? Oh. Well, yes, that's a great question. There's a lot of terms in this industry. So ADR is uh, often called, well, it stands for automated dialogue replacement or after. Sometimes people say after dialogue replacement. And it is when you have a production, let's say a video or a film production, or it could be an animation or a game where uh, you record the dialogue after the production. Mm. So film and television, for instance, um, you've recorded the actors, and then let's say there's a missing line or the, the writer wanted to add a line or into the, into the, the visuals, and, and or if it's messed up, it's noisy, the microphone didn't work right, there was, you know, or it was distorted or anything, you might want to replace those lines. Right. So then you would go into the studio and you would sync it and bring the actor in and then you do ADR, <laughs> the dialogue replacement essentially as, as an engineer. So usually there's a recording engineer and then an actor. And with things like the animated shows that I worked on, such as Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, um, we would call that ADR because it was they were Japanese shows and we had to replace all of the dialogue to uh, American. Gotcha. Okay, now it all makes sense. And yes, and I have seen recordings on TV, other people might have too, in documentaries about the making of a movie where you can see actors going in after the fact into a sound studio and 
rereading lines for whatever exactly. reason that might have gotten messed up. So I get that. Now, when we talk about sound environments, um, mm -hmm. are we talking about how sound is set up and recorded within different environments, like a studio versus out uh, backstage, backstage chats versus mm -hmm. online or versus virtual reality? Is that what we're talking about or... Yeah, I think, you know, as a sound designer, um, I like to, I think of designing a space for uh, anything really, or it, let's say you do music, a lot of the music that I did on my of my own was experimental. And I would love to create a space where it has visual components, and you could walk in there and really just feel like you've been transported. And so music has a, a very emotional power of doing that. And, and you can just change this, the environment and give someone an experience, right? With those kinds of, with, um, you know, spaces that you could have, whether it's in an art gallery or, you know, any, any club or concert lounge that you might create. But also as a sound designer, uh, I've done a lot of work for, for picture for, you know, so designing those sounds, um, you'd want to kind of make everything from the ambience, the background ambiences, background sounds. You know, for instance, if you have a city scene and you think about what are all the sounds that might make people feel like it's a scene, when um, when video and film projects are, are done, they're missing a lot of sounds. <laughs> they focus on the dialogue. So we create, you know, the environments and then the music is added to create the motion and all of it together sort of makes the soundtrack. Um, we're doing the same thing in games. So I think creating, when I, when I say sound environments, what's interesting about games and these immersive environments now is that the user can move around. And so they might do something different. <laughs> and so the sound has to change and interact with them um, so it's a really exciting area for new ways of writing music um, in those kind of spaces that that they're calling immersive immersive environment. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump straight into virtual reality because I have a huge I have I have a really big fascination with it. I have a side project that I'm working on with a developer, and um, which is music cool. related, of course, because anything that I see is an opportunity where women can get more exposure and have equal, um, you know, of course, merit-based success, but equal opportunity. Um, I'm, I'm very excited about it. And, um, given what you know now about virtual reality and for folks who have never been in it, try it. It's the most incredibly unique experience. It's kind of mind blowing. Um, but there are limitations and there's so much that we need to understand what is your take on how virtual reality and the music business are going to be looking in the next two to three years? Wow. You know, that's a, that's a great question. I love, I want to hear all about your project too, by the way. <laughs> so it, I, what I always say is that um, a great way to get into the, any uh, industry right now is to go where the new technologies are because you'll get a step ahead of those that have been out in the industry a while. I mean, I, I think it's a great um, point of entry, too, to start being creative in those new technologies. So I think you're exactly right. I would say to, to everyone to go into that um, 
looking and thinking about how you can be creative in it. If you can create a space that's, that's yours and, and how would you have co- people come and visit it? I, I do think, um, in two to three years, maybe also five years, it's just going to get so intricate. The, the visuals I think will get much, much better. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there'll be more, more content out there. It's, it's kind of, in the technology and people have to buy it, but there has to be enough content for them to buy it. So there needs to be a lot of content out there. So I, I do think AR augmented reality, which is just either on our phones or, or glasses or some kind of device where we can also see the environment. I guess that's the, the big difference between augmented reality and virtual reality is that with augmented reality, it's just added things that you're still being able to see. Um, and Magic Leap has some really interesting uh, work in that area. Um, and virtual reality, you're kind of covered up. So you've got to make sure you don't hit, run into the walls. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, then, and then there's mixed reality, which is when you take things that are real life and you mix them into the virtual reality experience. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, it's hard for everybody to keep it all straight, but... I'm with I'm with you. I think that um, getting in early is a great opportunity for women in music to um, meet new audiences worldwide. I mean, that's the beauty of it. And um, one of the things that I have found is a lot of the folks in the rooms that I've frequented are um, are younger. You know, we get a lot of teenagers and a lot of 20-somethings because, you know, they're the first ones who tend to adapt to this, especially because of gaming. I'm looking forward to seeing where it's going to be in the next two or three years and hopefully more accessible to create the content because right now, any kind of musical experience that I'm seeing, seeing online, that's VR anyway, uh, is right. a, a massive production and costs a lot of money and requires sensors and animation and all this other kind of stuff. So, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it eventually we'll we'll have platforms and templates and the technology just like we did with the internet. You know, it used to take forever to build a web page. Now you go click, 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 and it's good to go. Exactly, things would get easier and easier. When that happens, though, the it opens to more people, so it becomes more you're, you know, hard to stand out. So that's why if you can spend a little time working with. You know, you can either work with a group of people to try to, um, you know, get involved and, and create some kind of space or create some art. I think it's it's a valuable thing to do. Absolutely. And, and also, I think NFTs are really interested for interesting for music and opportunities for women um, to put their music out and to have it sell, maybe even do live performance and put that up for sale for recording uh, a recording of it and and getting your music out there so your fan base can actually purchase a piece of it or some kind of experience you might be giving. I actually I, I'm so glad that you brought it up because I was going to ask you to explain to people how the NFT process works because we hear everybody's jumping on the bandwagon right now and we yeah. hear okay there are NFTs for sale okay what is an NFT and if I were a music lover how would I go about buying one and why would I? That's a really good question. Well, you would go to some kind of website that offers NFTs. One of the biggest ones is called OpenSea. And uh, they have all kinds of art. So there's a lot of visual art. There's some animation. Um, but there's music as well. 
Um, there's, there's a bunch of others that are popping up. Um, I know, uh, for instance, Mark DeClivelo has one for Brooklyn artists. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's a lot popping up right now because people are exploring, you know, <laughs> they're exploring, um, you know, how this could work. Um, what it, what it is, is that you get kind of a, it's like a certificate of ownership. And so if you have an artist that you really adore, then you might want a little piece of their music that's just yours. Um, but there might be several versions of it, but maybe it's just, you know, it's got a little bit of a different visual with yours or a different part of the music or something. And they, it's just a sort of, it's like almost like merchandise, I guess. Um, and then they can share it and they can also resell it. And the, the thing about that is then the artist, um, the original artist still gets some percentage of any time it keeps getting resold. So that's a little bit better than somebody, you know, that music for free, there's potential there. Um, but also, so why you would want to do it, you know, there's sometimes experiences sold with them too, which is that if you buy my NFT and it has this song associated with it, maybe you get um, a free ticket or an, a backstage pass to my show if I'm in Boston or what, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Right. I think there's, there's experiences that you can start to sell with it. And it's, it just opens up another potential income stream for, um, for um, you know, somebody doing music. Right. And, uh, you know, we've come so far, we keep talking about this as part of animations and VR is obviously <laughs> digitally animated and very different. Um, it kind of leads me to your work with animated series. We turn on Nickelodeon or any of the kids' channels and you see, you hear the sounds, you hear the voices, obviously the animation is there. And it it made me think, what about, look at the differences between what is happening now with something like Pokemon mm-hmm. and Looney Tunes. Remember Looney Tunes? Like all the crazy musical noises and sounds and songs that went along with Bugs Bunny and the gang. Um, what are the differences that you see that are pretty clear between what was happening maybe in the you know 1940s, 50s with Bugs and then what's happening today? Yeah, I think that, that Looney Tunes, I mean, it's incredible stuff. It's incredible stuff. And one of the reasons I was so into working at Sesame Workshop was because I loved Sesame Street music. And what they did did was they didn't talk down to kids. Yeah. Um, I also really loved working in animation and in children's media because as a sound person, I could actually have more uh, leeway with creating the, the worlds of sounds. So the sounds that I'd use, the sound effects, the ambiences, the music could be so goofy and crazy and it would be fine it would be like almost desirable (laughs) so you know it it didn't have to it could I just felt like I had a lot of playful freedom creative freedom and so with with Looney Tunes getting back to your question um incredible music I mean it's virtuosic it's based on classical music models and it does what they call a lot of Mickey Mousing um, that term where it actually follows the action really closely, where you would you would have a, a musical scale 
going down in pitch as a character would, you know, would be falling like Bugs Bunny or something. And so the, the music kind of does exactly what the action does. And that to me, and the, the boings and the pops, and there's, there's some culturally, we recognize those sounds and there's sound effects libraries. You can purchase the Looney Dunes sound library and they, you know, painstakingly over years had collected and created and recorded all of these cool sounds um, but they sound like the times they sound like, cause in the recordings of them were, you know, based on the technology at the time, they actually have a little bit of, uh, I had a student the other day that's, um, noticed a sound that's like, that sounds like a vintage sound. And I'm like, what do you, how do you know it's a vintage sound? And it's like, it just has that sound quality that sounds like Looney Tunes, you know, <laughs> and it, it's just wonderful. And, but the newer ones now, I mean, things like Pokemon and, you know, I'm sure there's actually other animations that are out there that I haven't seen now. Um, but they're a little bit more abstract. You know, some of them um, went the complete opposite way and went more minimal. Um, shows that are more action-based like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! And they're, they're little big orchestras and um, a little more brass and, and that sort of sounding thing, um, sound, that kind of sound. Um but I also think there's a lot of like synthesized scores now that are a little bit more minimal that won't actually follow the action, but just kind of have a little bit more sparseness. Mm-hmm. I think that feels uh, a little bit more fresh in some ways. That's the more um, modern approach. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But still being able to um, have new sounds and timbres and maybe um, um, unrecognizable instruments that that still are put together that that create emotion so the you know typical music knowledge i think is still still necessary of course and then of course starting as young as little kids like with sesame street yeah yes right i mean that's starting young and by the way who is your favorite muppet oh my goodness uh well definitely the count (laughs) Definitely count. I mean, who doesn't like a counting, you know, count? <laughs> I always love the count, too. I, I, one of my yeah. favorites is also Animal. Oh, yes. Animal was on The Muppet Show and just completely nuts. <laughs> and completely crazy. <laughs> yeah, maybe I was exposed to young. Maybe that's how I got into this industry. <laughs> oh, maybe. Yes, it really, that stuff, it was very trippy in a lot of ways. And they had electronic sounds at the time with like theremin and all kinds of, it, and they had the Pointer Sisters. I don't know if you remember the. Oh my gosh, they had a ton of people on there. Yeah. Well, I think that, uh, speaking of starting young and all that, uh, earlier we were talking about classes that you teach, and I know that you are a big proponent of you got to see it to be it, meaning that if you don't see people who look like you, then it's harder for you to envision yourself being in a position. So when you first started taking classes in the technical classes, you were finding yourself to be the only woman in a class between 20 and 100 people. Yes, yes. Where are we now? Where are we now? We're better a little bit. <laughs> not, not, a, not quite balanced yet. Um, but yeah, there's still, there's more women. There's more women out there. We're trying to be more visible. Um, there's more women's groups now than ever before. Um, there's, I don't know if you've heard of, um, Aaron Barra's group, uh, Beats by Girls that starts girls at a young age. Um, there's a lot of, um, 
uh, Chino's Tech, which is uh, Berkeley Valencia based, but is now moving out pretty globally that had a conference this summer in New York that's bringing women together because we don't always get to meet each other. There's a few issues. One is that um, we typically, if we are a woman, we sometimes keep to ourselves. <laughs> um, we're not always doing the hangouts with our friends saying, you know, what microphones do you have? You know, <laughs> so I, I think we, you know, I missed out on a lot of that. Um, just as far as what I saw the men doing is that after classes, they would hang out and, and they would, you know, play each other's new speakers and talk about that stuff. And, and I, um, felt a little, you know, out of that loop. And I felt like maybe my, my skills weren't getting as good, like practiced. Um, so I think it, a number of things is seeing it to being it, to be it, to make sure that we're out there, um, being vocal, that we're, um, being involved, that we're actually at the table doing things. And then we're also talking about it and we're reaching out to women, getting them together and saying, Hey, you need to meet each other and you can do this. And then also it was always important to me with women's groups to add on tech education mm -hmm. because I feel like sometimes maybe women are, you know, in, in what I was seeing is sometimes they didn't even know what they didn't know yet <laughs> because they, they weren't around the environment. So if they can sit down and say, let's, Let's do a workshop on compression just for women. <laughs> Let's do a workshop on synthesis just for women and see. And the result has been been really great. Um, so at Berkeley, we have a few different uh, women's groups now. We have the Women Producer Collective, which is more advanced women and you know intermediate to advanced, and they're teaching each other. So it's peer training. And they're just on fire, these women. <laughs> I love it. Peer training. Peer training, yes. And um, then she knows tech, as I mentioned. And, um, you know, we also do try to do a biweekly hangout here in our department for those women that might find themselves alone in a class. We're about 30% women in our department, which, again, you, will, you might still find yourself, you know, you might find yourself in a classroom with a, several women. Um, you know, and, and one thing that, I've found is that since I've been here, I even had one class that was all women one semester. And so I think it's a result of a lot of the work we're doing. And I think this can be done and is being done on a larger scale where what we have control of is here. So let's, let's show them that we're being it, doing it, getting into these positions of, of you know, where our voice can be heard and then building environments where young women can meet each other and can meet those of us that have been in the industry a while and um, and they meet each other because they're going to be partners going into the industry together. So that camaraderie is super important. And at the same time with the education stuff we're doing, you got to, you got to know your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you got to, you, you know, that's, that's number one. I mean, some people always say you have to know it more, but I do think you just have to be good. You have to be really good at the stuff. And anyway, I'm probably talking too long. <laughs> Not at all. It's fascinating. And this is this is exactly what people want to hear, because, I mean, first of all, I think that having group uh, female group dynamics like that are also helpful in building confidence and so that women feel good enough about their their work to speak up, whereas yeah. in um if you're surrounded by all men, you might feel intimidated or feel like you have imposter syndrome. 
Absolutely. And so this is this is a great way to help women have the tools and knowledge and experience to get over that and and Absolutely. know that they can speak out. Do you think that I mean, I, this is, and I say this on occasion, I'm like, we are not a man haters club at all. We love all the men who have helped us get to where we are and, you know, our excellent mentors and inspirations and supporters of ours. But um, I will ask, have you seen any changes in how male students interact with the female students in this technical field now versus 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Um, I think always there's some um, immaturity, you know, some some comments that that sometimes can can be hurtful. Um, we're also I think the times that even the new professors um, are so much more open to we're we're practicing being able to notice those things in the moment and try to nip them in the bud um, if there's anything that's like uh, you know against um, the diversity and inclusion kind of, um, area so that, that if anybody is feeling less than that, we try to, um, make it known that we're, you know, please come talk to us if you're feeling a, a certain way, or if somebody has said something to you. Um, I think there's a lot of women that I'm coming that it depends on the woman, um, and women, women identified, uh, people, that if, you know, sometimes if they, they'll come in, they don't, I, I don't, I'm not bothered by any of that. I'm just doing my thing. And I'm so passionate that I don't care. I've grown up with a ton of brothers and I'm like, you know, <laughs> we have a lot of women like that. Um, and then we have others that'll come to my office and saying, you know, I'm a little hungry for some community with women. And, um, you know, I'm those women sometimes I don't, I don't feel like they're comfortable asking questions because they don't want to look like they've, you know, that they don't know what they're doing. So it's, it's sort of a, it can hurt them, right? And if they're not able to ask their questions and, and um, so trying to give them an outlet for, for them to go ask their teachers after office hours if they're not comfortable or they can come and ask me or they can come, you know, that, that we're there for them. They can ask in the, in the Women Producers Collective um, so that they, they have some kind of um, a lot of resources, a network of resources to help them. And I have found in my personal experience, because when I worked um, in high tech, I was surrounded by a lot of men. Uh, mm-hmm. Just so everybody knows, guys love it when you ask them how to do something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I have found, just ask, how does this work? I don't understand this. And it's uh, guys will love to fill you in. And hopefully they will do it in a very gracious kind and respectful way. But um, I have definitely found that it's a great starting point if you, you know, do want to start hanging out with the guys more and getting more experience with them as well. Mm -hmm. Ask them, what are you working on? What, you know, how, how did you do A or B? And, um, you know, we all love to share that kind of thing. It makes us feel good. So, uh, you know, just another, just another, it doesn't have to be just the ladies, you know, there's, I have found that there are a lot of guys who are more than happy (laughs) to give their opinion (laughs) and share knowledge. And you have to make sure that, 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 you know, when you know stuff that they're not teaching you their opinion too when you already do know the stuff that's true i mean you have to under you have to be able to break it apart and say okay am i doing this right am i you know critical thinking is always a good thing 
yes, I, I wouldn't be here. I think you mentioned that before. If there weren't some male allies that really did just teach me stuff and I was able to ask questions. And so we have to be vulnerable in that way. Exactly. Um, so before we get going, I do want to ask people how they can follow what you're up to. That's a great question. Um, I am on social media. I'm on um, Instagram as Darling Sound. Okay. And uh, I'm also on Facebook still. Um, and so, um, yeah, come find me there. We will. We'll come find you there. And also for everybody who listens to the podcast, we will have more information about Michelle Darling on our show notes page with all kinds of links. And um, we'll probably have some sound bites because I've seen uh, some of the music around the internet that you can hear all these really trippy kind of fun, funky things that um, Michelle's been working on. And uh, actually, before we do wrap up, because of all that funkiness, you uh, you, I don't know if she's still your alter ego or not, but can you tell people about Misha D real fast? Yes, I can. Well, that's a, I don't know real fast, but (laughs) well, I would just say this. um, I'm a typical creative person that I um, had different types of music that I felt like making at different times. So I, I was always into electronic music. And so I did a project with my partner called Aerostatic. And that was very experimental electronic music and ambient. And that's where my head was at. It afforded me a lot of opportunities for live performance to meet really incredible artists in that area that I'm still, I think it's one of the reasons I'm sitting here today is because I did that experimental music project and I knew a lot of the people that have, you know, come up in the industry that we were playing shows with back then. I wanted to start making people dance because I have a long history coming from the Chicago clubs, house music. And I said, I just want to make people dance. So I met some New York club um, club goers and they made costumes for um, for us. And we started a band called Girls Like Bass and had some incredible shows, had so much fun. Um, and, you know, this was all while I lived in New York and while I was doing uh, sound design work during the day. <laughs> I would on the nights and weekends be performing in in New York clubs and and lounges and underground spaces. And so Misha D was sort of the the DJ that came out of that. And I started out DJing, I have to say, um, but radio. And so um, it turned that it was very heavy lift to get the band to do shows and rehearsal spaces and um, so I realized, well, why don't I do a DJ version of that and uh, sort of pare the music down um, and not have as many vocalists and things that I was working with. And so um, Misha D was created. Now, I will have to say this, and this is maybe a longer winded conversation, but um, I wasn't having a lot of success in the house music world. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. And one is because I was um, not quite living and breathing the scene anymore. So I was a little making the music, but not quite in the scene. But one of my friends suggested, why don't you change your name to being more um, androgynous so that it wasn't, um, you know, they didn't know you were a woman, but they questioned. Um, and surprisingly, once I did that, I, I got picked up by a label. <laughs> so wow. Interesting. Yeah, it, it was really, really interesting. But there's a lot of factors, so I don't want to point fingers. <laughs> but it is, yeah. but coincidental or not, 
that advice seemed to get you noticed in different ways. It did. It did. And I also think it was, you know, you really need to be part of a network and a part of a crew for that. And if even so, regardless, man or woman, um, they want to know if you can be part of the crew on the label. And so, uh, you know, I was going through these labels that were, you know, there was a lot of women around. Right. <laughs> so I think they didn't, didn't know what to do with me, you know. Um, so, yeah, there, there's a lot of versions of this story, but I did come up with um, that name was it was behind it. Actually, I think that's such a good lesson is like it, it, nomenclature is important. Yeah, it does make yeah. a difference. So um, I think that that's a, another fantastic lesson of many things that you've shared with us today for women who want to uh, explore or, or further their career in sound production and uh, engineering. And I just want to say thank you, Michelle Darling, for being here today and sharing all this wisdom with us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. And I just wish everybody the best of luck. And you yourself, I want to hear all about your projects still. Oh, yeah, we'll have to take that (laughs) offline. (laughs) But I I think you'd really like it. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Backstage Chats with Women in Music. We love stories like Michelle's. Why? Because they inspire us to be dreamers, rule breakers, and rock stars. Until next time, it's a wrap. Horizon Music, the podcast, is produced by Thea Wood Productions based in Detroit, Michigan. Giving credit where credit is due, we'd like to thank folks for their contributions to this episode. Amir Halevi and Zhejiang Tong for audio production and editing, Bianca Garcia and her social media team, Emmy Ballard, Alexa Bassanagra, Alexandria Barres, and Brianna Haxisimbath. This podcast is the property of Thea Wood Productions, Inc. and is protected by copyright law. Use of this podcast is for personal and non-commercial purposes only. No other use of this production, including and without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing, may be made without prior consent from Thea Wood Productions, Inc.